Well, we said it would be a couple weeks till we're back, and then we had a tragic loss of Ennio Maricone, so uh, we came together to record a special episode in tribute. Yeah, uh, luckily our schedule's lined up to allow for this as well. I know you just got back from your uh, 4th of July camping trip, or glamping as you called it. Yeah, we were going to go to the camping ground, but as we drove past it, there was a beach full of just a swarm of people. It looked like the living dead. Um, uh, no no social distance at all. It looked like a corona death trap. So we went camping outside our cabin instead, which is a great luxury to have. That is, that is kind of funny. It just makes me think of like the, the camping, like, like the kid going out and camping in the tent and parasite outside the luxurious mansion. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. Um, I don't feel like we really spent a night in it, but it allowed Ezra to believe that we went camping and to get a feel for what it would be like in a tent. So um, good for us. Good glamping trip. Yes, it's uh, nice to do, and and glad that you could still do it, even though people are out there trying to spread diseases to you. That was your fourth. Did you celebrate America? Uh, actually, sort of. I did watch uh, some more uh, jingoistic propaganda. Usually, I like to to celebrate. <laughs> I like to celebrate Fourth of July with some cynical reminders that America is kind of a <laughs> shitty country, and we're, yeah. you know, we do terrible things. But uh, I wanted to watch something whimsical, so I watched uh, 1776, which is a musical about the signing of the Declaration of Independence. And it was wonderful, and I loved it, and I've been listening to the soundtrack ever since, and uh, now I feel like a traitor to my cynical soul. I watched something without any nuance as well. I watched Rocky IV. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, when you have family around, and you don't, you don't want to go like into the full like examine America from the inside route. You just want something that's... Like you say, jingoistic and uh, uh, pretty flat. But uh, I, I love Rocky Four because it's 30% montages. Mm-hmm. Someone broke it apart and counted. Uh, I'd love it even more if it were 100%. And I know that uh, Stallone recently said Director's Cut is coming soon. So I really? thought it, Yeah, I thought it was time to revisit it, get familiar. And maybe I'll review the Director's Cut for the site. That seems like good uh, a good activity to do. I, I would read that for sure. Uh, if, if you phrase it in the form of a montage, of course. <laughs> Maybe I record like a video montage of me reviewing it. Or, or <laughs> we'll, we'll brainstorm something. Yeah, we'll get pretty meta with it. It'll be a fun review. It, it won't be a straight review, but uh, I'm going to do that when that comes. Great. That sounds like a fun time. Other than that, we had some uh, Westerns come to Criterion, which oh, I think yeah. we're both pretty excited about. Yeah, not that we uh, talk about, uh, you know, we don't usually like to highlight the Criterion channel on this podcast. Or Westerns, no. Yeah, uh, but but in the case of that, it happened to, the, it's a collection of noir Westerns, which is an interesting uh, conglomeration that we've talked about briefly before when we highlighted uh, 310 to Yuma, specifically the 1957 film, which was uh, a favorite here. Uh, I'm surprised. I found it actually kind of surprising because to me, that's like the dictionary definition of a blend of noir and western, and it like just left the channel prior to yeah. them adding this collection. So I'm like, oh, yeah. okay. But you know, they they're highlighting a bunch of other interesting ones, uh, some of which we have seen, some of which uh, we're going to get to soon of our own volition. Uh, but you know, we at least thought we'd talk about the ones that interested us. I think you got to the one that must interest me most, which is the Mitchum one, Blood on the Moon. Blood on the Moon, yeah. So it's, it's actually kind of interesting because that was the first film I watched this month because I've actually been waiting and, and I've kind of been looking around in anticipation of this. I've known about Blood on the Moon for a long time uh, for because, very much because it's been heralded as this prototypical noir western. 
and there was one day I went to the the rental place that was down here in Portland, uh, Movie Madness, and I went looking for it, and I found it because they do have just about everything, but it was only on VHS. There was only a VHS oh. release of it, <laughs> and I was very disappointed. And then very recently, like a month ago, Warner Archive put out a new Blu-ray transfer of it. And so that was it was exciting to hear. And then I'm certain that that's what they got on the channel as well, the new uh, remaster of that. So when that all came together, I'm like, well, I'm watching this first thing, and I did. And it's and it's very good. It's a it is definitely a very good blend of noir and western. Uh, Mitchum made it right off the heels of uh, Out of the Past, which of course is one of my favorite noir films ever. Um, mm. And we'll cover that sometime, I'm sure. But uh, and then it's also it's directed by Robert Wise, who has an okay. eclectic career of uh, all sorts of different genres. But in particular, when he was at RKO around this time, he also did um, oh, no. uh, some of the Val Luton horror films, mm. like uh, The Body Snatcher with uh, Boris Karloff. Um, that's a good era for Mitchum, and I'm excited to see that. Uh, I I just like the blending of western noir because. I think there are good themes that are hard and well defined it, that structurally work together. Okay. Well, it's, it's very interesting because they are antithetical genres in a way. Uh, noirs are supposed to be very morally black and white. You've got you know the good guys and the the bads, the thieves, and all that. And noirs are much more muddled and gray in their moralities. You know, even the good guys are shades of uh, corrupt in various ways. So putting the two together is is interesting, and uh, it can work in. Uh, surprising facets. I had just seen so far Station West, which is a Dick Powell um, uh, Western noir. I'd say it's a noir with cowboy hats, though. Um, it mostly has the setting and characters of the West, but every theme, like you say, is uh, hard boiled, black and white. Um, not a lot of moral ambiguity there. Uh, it It is fun because it has like a Dick Powell and Jane Greer and uh, just a the cavalcade of people that would be in noirs and, and musicals, of course. Uh, uh, Dick Powell, you'll know from uh, some of the early reviews. and uh, He was a big uh, it, uh, over at Warner Brothers for Busby Berkeley films. In fact, uh, you know, the reason he's in stuff like that is because he got so tired of doing musicals all the time. He insisted <laughs> that he get some more serious roles, and so that's how he got some of his bigger noir titles, like uh, Murder, My Sweep, which is an adaptation of... Uh, um, a Chandler novel, novel, one of the first. And funnily enough, he just like ends up working in genre anyway. Like he doesn't get into like the the prestige drama projects right. he, or something. He never really got to you know stretch outside of that, but you know, still he, plays he, characters. Yeah, he's yeah. he he's characters, and he he does a good job, I think, in most everything I've seen him in. He's nice to to come across. He's uh, very funny in this. The first few minutes really get to celebrate like his acting style, which I'm not totally familiar with but now i really want to be because um he's just so fast talking and uh so slick with his comebacks uh um you should i, I would highly recommend some of those busby berkeley stuffs like uh 42nd street footlight parade <laughs> and gold diggers of 1933 because those are all really uh pre-cody as well and they've got some salacious dialogue for him to spit and he's he's very humorous <laughs> uh salacious dialogue is about the name of the game here I love when he punches a guy out, <laughs> and the guy gets real angry with him. He says, uh, you just go bleed from the lip, or you go come correct me? He has a <laughs> lot of good one-liners like that that just flow real smooth and sound really cool for a noir guy in a cowboy hat. And that's mm -hmm. what this movie's all about. So uh, I get a lot of mileage out of these things. Uh, 
I don't need a lot more than this. Well, there's a good uh, selection of others. I'm going to pitch some recommendations to you as well, because they, they have quite a number of good ones here that I have seen before. Like, uh, they have uh, Man of the West and uh, The Naked Spur, which are two Anthony Mann westerns. He's kind of only, like, uh, secondary to uh, Howard Hawks and John Ford in terms of dominating the western genre. And his films with uh, Jimmy Stewart in particular are wonderful, like The Naked Spur. But uh, Man of the West in particular might be his, his best. It's a... Uh, post high noon gary cooper and you've got lee j cobb in a really great uh you know antagonist role it's a very beautiful color film uh, i would highly recommend that one so out of these we're looking at man of the west and uh, station west um what was your one uh blood on the moon blood on the moon yeah so uh check those out and uh i'm gonna be watching a few more of these yeah uh, this is right in my niche so Definitely, I'll, I will be uh, looking at it as well. Maybe we'll cover one. Uh, well, I, actually, we got some other westerns to get to, but eventually we'll come around to one of these, I'm sure. Um, and speaking of, finally, a western is just released this week, First Cow, uh, which is a western of the Oregon Trail, um, interconnected somewhat with uh, Reichardt's uh, other films. It, it begins with Wendy and Lucy, uh, the dog and the, the lady from one of her earlier films. Uh, exploring the modern Oregon Trail, and they find like bones, and then we go back to back in time and explore like the past lives of people who lived on the trail, and it's made with such a great compassion and heart that uh, I felt warm every time I've thought about the movie. I started at like a high nine, and then the more I reflect on it, I think this is a really special, probably going to be an American classic. So, wow. uh, of all the things I've seen this year, this is destined for long-term status well, well you've certainly had a long time to reflect on it uh <laughs> when did this come out again well i went in to schedule a piece and i i almost scheduled it for may because that's when i saw it so it almost went up three four months ago <laughs> <laughs> uh so it's been a long time waiting on this but i wrote the review back then right when uh corona was breaking uh it is a chinese immigrant story so it has a little bit of confluence but um i feel like people could decide that for themselves and find out uh, what's just so special about this uh, immigrant story about someone who breaks off from a from a pack and paves their own way and it, creates American economy in a way? It sounded very wholesome and uh, jubilant the way you described it in the review, uh, kind of warm, uh, buddy experience on the Oregon Trail. I mean, the other main character's name is Cookie, so, <laughs> you know, and he bakes, like his name's Cookie and his thing is that he bakes, and if, so he needs to get this milk from a cow, so it, it's kind of like a, kind of like a crime caper too. They they break in, steal all the milk, and make cookies. It feels like every like uh, chuck wagon driver in Western films are named Cookie of some kind. <laughs> I swear, I, there's I, like four or five others that I could probably think of right now. The only modern thing I think of is Cookie Masterson because we've been playing a lot of the Jack, <laughs> a lot right. of Jack off parties lately. <laughs> well, uh, yeah, I'm glad that uh, first cow finally hit. You've been secretly raving about it to me for months now and i feel like you're gonna go mad if you didn't get to say something uh, so it's nice that it's finally dropped for everyone to watch and rent uh you've been saying this entire time that it's probably the best film of the year in a year of very little selection like i see i see a very clear path to this being my film of the year i don't want to make that like proclamation now but i mean i, I mean you said the same thing around this time last year about high life high life until like <laughs> Well, until like Rocket Man came out around this time, right? This right. Year, it was around this time. It was just about a year ago. We yeah. we ranted and raved about Rocket Man. 
I watched that again recently, by the way. How do you feel about it? The still time? wonderful. It's still wonderful. Yeah. I showed it to to a couple of friends, and they were enamored with it. Um, you know, and I thought about it again. It it really is kind of a successor to old MGM style musicals, and in, in, in a way yeah. that's something I think that La La Land wasn't that everyone kind of claimed it is. I think Rocket Man is definitely being overlooked still. We need to. I think so. We need to take every opportunity possible to to lift it into the echelon of great films of the previous decade. I feel the same way about First Cow. That it's just it's just getting dropped without the other, which is uh, sad. It's so special because uh, it has that it has that kind of shot on film vibe. It looks gorgeous. Um, it really requires a cinema screen. So uh, hopefully not a ton of loss there. I doubt it's going to make any money back um but uh i hope Rikert keeps making films forever because uh all, almost all of her stories are of the pacific northwest uh, i don't think she's from here but uh she has a great filmography of our uh setting and you know she's made like meek's cut off another great western mm-hmm. uh, a very slow western um she's very good at slow movies and i doubt this will win the oscar crowd but Maybe this is the year where something could sneak in like this and win something. Well, uh, what else do we have that's, uh, you know, a contender for anything? Like, at this point, it almost sounds like the Oscars <laughs> might get put off. You know, yeah. I wouldn't be I surprised think, by that. I think we'll just slip into next year, and they'll probably count the first few months, and uh, some of that stuff will probably end up winning. Uh, just recency bias. But uh, uh, a lot of good changes to the Academy. A lot of foreign press now in, and there's or a lot of foreign uh, production is now included and they've changed the rules so uh, they could access films like this. So, w- so if you're in that, go watch first cow and uh, sometimes never rarely always right mm-hmm. now. Cause those are available. I would, I would love to see if uh, sometime next year when the theaters are open, if we could see distributors put in some of these films that got kind of looked over yeah. in ways. I don't know. Uh, I mean, that might be tough because you know, the distributors are already going to want to cram in as many showtimes in for new stuff that's coming out as possible. But, you know, these, these films deserve their first runs as well. Yeah. And uh, I don't know how A24 is feeling about it because they just delayed St. Maud again. So uh, it, they may be not feeling optimistic about this. Uh, I'd like to get anyone I could to watch it. Um, I I feel like the people who have that are with us largely love it. And uh, I just breathtaking for me i've never felt so happy leaving a theater so uh hamilton also came out speaking of great american stories um a lot of like the triumph of the obama era and it's very celebrate america which i don't think everyone's feeling right now um i i have no experience of hamilton i blacked it out for all these years and i've ignored all the hype um I, I think it's as good as a film stage play could possibly be. Laura has a review on the site. Yeah, uh, it's funny because I, I kind of sat there on the 4th of July for a moment deciding between do I want to watch Hamilton or do I want to wait for the revived <laughs> hype to die down? And yeah. and that's kind of what I went with, so that's why I decided to watch 1776 as well, which is is obviously informs Hamilton and the, uh, the, the idea of uh, kind of revisionist uh, musical history of the the founding and such but i'm i'm still very interested in it i'm just i'm kind of waiting for all of the the zeitgeist to to kind of go away a little bit so i can tackle it with with fresh eyes uninformed by all of the voices shouting at me i i think that's totally fair and i think it's very uncritical the way we approach hamilton um, yeah it's i think i think there are problems with it uh, i think 
I think only casting, you know, black actors as the white people and not not really talking about black people at the time uh, says only these people matter. And I mean, there there are ways to go about this that are different, well, and I I appreciate the representation. It's it's a it's a tough thing I'm sure to tackle in general, and it's there's no clear answer to it. Like I can I can cite as well. I can tell you that in in 1776 they have a whole scene dedicated to talking about like dealing with the the freedom you know like, like all men created equal part of the declaration and slavery and it's like this big serious moment and then it turns into this bombastic number from the uh south carolina and congressmen talking about the slave trade and the the three yeah. the, the triangle trade and how the north benefits from it and how they're all hypocrites and it's it's this really big like fire and brimstone number and in a, in a way it's great and it's wonderful that they they tackle that portion of it and they talk about it but also it kind of like undermines the sincerity and seriousness of the subject matter and and so there's no clean answer and, and, and it, there's also a little bit of that i found in the film as well with like how women are kind of shoehorned into the story and they kind of only exist to complain about not their husbands not being around and their husbands yeah. are like like there's a whole plot line about Thomas Jefferson like delaying writing the declaration because he just needs to get his dick wet <laughs> there's a <laughs> I, I, yeah and so there's a lot to kind of tackle with that whole time period and it's there's no easy answer i think and you know you you can do it you can't do it too serious but you can't do it you know like ham-fistedly either so i think i think hamilton's just about as good as it could be i feel like it could tackle slavery a little bit more closely or it could talk about uh more black concerns of the time but then it's also taken from all this 90s rap and occasionally that doesn't fit for me um occasionally oh, yeah. what his illusions are to rap don't don't work for me i don't think he's a great rapper either so there's that <laughs> you're gonna get you're gonna get so much hate on this section now for for possibly like you wanted to highlight hamilton but then also like shit on it i can't i can't say anything in defense of it because i haven't watched it yet but i but we even talk say that it's a fantastic play i just feel like the reception has been fairly uncritical and fairly well yeah like, no and, that, and that's the thing it. that's that's exactly what i'm saying is because the fan base is entirely uncritical and just so fervent you're gonna have people with you know torches and pitchforks running at us now because you <laughs> dared to say something you know alluding to criticism of it i just think uh obama era america is a little bit different than trump era and if you made it now it would be a very very different movie and i don't think it would be half as optimistic and I don't know if it's optimism is what I really need now. I don't know if, like, American exceptionalism shown through, you know, the celebration of uh, black hope and black freedom is really on point anymore, you know? Right. I feel but, like it would be entirely different, but, but it is what it is. But at the same time, don't you think that the people who are so excited about Hamilton aren't really thinking about the geopolitical sphere and the, the political, you know, uh, ramifications going on? behind the, the story's inspiration and the time period in which it came out in. I don't I don't really think they're thinking well, that hard about it. I think they just like seeing Lin-Manuel Miranda rap about Founding Father stuff. Yeah, and I, I don't think the play is either. I mean, I think that's the only problem with it. I think everything else is fantastic and obviously deserves a watch, but uh, I'd wait till the hype goes down too because I find it a little bit overbearing anyway yeah well, that's always been the case for me and you know as you could tell by my reluctance to watch anything that is new or relevant uh mm. I, I just don't like being i don't know like like kind of pressured and informed in by going into something 
Uh, yeah. You know, I'd, I'd rather just uh, w- watch it with with total fresh eyes and be as uh, uninfluenced as I can. You don't want to feel obligated by a zeitgeist to to get to something to be a part of a conversation, right? Well, just it, it, you know, and it, the the fact that it just drives the entire conversation, and like you said, it's usually very uncritical conversation. Like there's there's less there, there's no nuance to it. Everyone's just consuming it really, yeah. and that's uh, frustrating at times. I mean, a place a place for optimism. We need a we need a great black story. I mean, they moved this up 15 months for a reason, right? Like Was it really uh, 15 months? Through, yeah, it was going to release in theater next year in like 15 months, uh, like next fall and next November or so. That's crazy. And uh just to just to have it now is very important. I could see why they made that move and they paid like what like 60 50 million dollars for this thing so i think the more interesting conversation it's reviving is the idea of film broadway musicals and presenting yeah. this this cultural you know uh, atmosphere to people of of less uh reputable like income like they can't necessarily afford to fly to new york and pay 200 four hundred dollars or whatever it is for tickets for the show that, by the way yeah it's, especially <laughs> a few thousand or something especially for hamilton hamilton right. is, is infamous for how like shockingly high the prices are for it and like it's the people it should be for aren't able to see it is kind of the problem right right but and and it and it does raise these interesting conversations and i'm and i'm on both sides of it here because it's like yeah Yeah. this art form should be available to the masses and be able to be consumed but at the same time the filmed version of it is not the art form that you think it is it's really like theater is so much more about being there and interacting with the performers and having that fresh experience and it's about the um the the agreement with the the performers there that that illusory uh, screen between the stage and the audience, which is not at all the same as the one between you know the the camera. Yeah, of course, and I mean you're willing to accept a mistake or something, and that's extreme narrow casting. So when you broadcast it, it's a complete different agreement well, with the audience. It's so. also just the difference of the the framing alone. Like the, Once you start yeah. putting things in frame, then you're informing the audience where to look and what's important, and you're not allowing the stage to speak for itself. The stage is its own entire different medium, and people who haven't seen a live uh, stage show of any kind are, are really... I don't think they, they know what the, the astronomical difference is between it. It's a completely just... different art form. I think the difference between filling a rectangle and filling an entire three-dimensional stage, I mean, it is a dimensional difference. And it is also, like, the, our relationship as an audience with uh, cinema and the stage is just completely different because there is that yeah. that agreement. You kind of have a an unspoken agreement with the performers that you're willing to allow for more suspension of disbelief through the stage because it is, it's replicating an idea of something, whereas the screen is showing you it's just it's a it's a mirror as opposed to a mm. fantastical kind of uh immersive thing as much if you, if you understand yeah. what i mean absolutely and i think just like the whole ensemble of it when you zoom in you're losing some of the surrounding yeah once you have a close-up you're losing the the motif and the setting but it, again at the same time there is still an argument for preserving that performance and that experience there through recording them and and i think that's a valuable asset but it should never be seen as a replacement for it because it's really it it genuinely is not the same and if uh watching a recorded version is the only way you can see it 
then that's fine. And and the availability of that, I think, should be made. But we shouldn't, like... And, and then there's also... Replace it, right. Th- there's also the talk as well. Like, the reason we can do this with Hamilton is that Hamilton has already made a gajillion dollars and is still going to be highly successful. But, yeah. like, you can't just film a, something that takes four or five years to make and and so many millions of dollars to fund into and then just like put it out to be consumed at like 12 bucks a pop or something because that's not gonna Mm -hmm. compensate the performers or all of the production that went into it you're never ever going to make that money back there's a reason why those broadway tickets do cost so much some of it's certainly inflated but you know it's still uh all adds to paying for that but then you think if disney throws like 60 million at it and uh their downloads increased about 80% over the last week of their service. Uh, uh, in some way, it must be astronomical for them, and it must be doing amazing numbers still. Yeah, um, I'll say this. Uh, I'm much happier with the idea of them having uh, the property through a recorded musical you know, performance rather than the usual practice of making it as a film like adapting the, f- yeah. the film uh it's not cats so. oh yeah that would god no but but cats is its own kind of disaster for different reasons <laughs> like uh, i guess going back to like 1776 uh, i mean i don't know at the same time like i did like how they made it more you know film like but uh in, in general especially with something like hamilton where it's a lot more minimal sets and stuff and much more about performance yeah. it's uh you don't want to like try and make that screen thing, especially like if we're looking at the typical way of just going like all out and blowing the proportion sides of it way the hell up. Uh, mm-hmm. It's it's better to let a a play be a play, uh, or and especially musical plays because there's a whole other kind of degree of suspension of disbelief there. Uh, it, Again, I, I argue in their preservation, but not in their replacement. You... Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> I think uh, both should exist at the same time. Um, I think interesting pairing, too, because Hamilton, I think, has the Disney optimism already. Because it is that Obama-era liberalism that uh, I, I think it is a good fit, weirdly. And it's surprising that it didn't just originate from Disney. So, Well, not that. to mention the fact that, uh, you know, Disney basically has the rights to Lin-Manuel Miranda's future career now um, what, like not only in the yeah. animated sphere but also they have his next production I think in the Heights I believe it's called his next musical the production they have the rights to that yeah. yeah you get some flowers and flowers and flowers that's uh, wonderful to hear uh, on a sad note we have to turn to uh, the subject of today, who, uh, which would be the recent passing of uh, Ennio Morricone, the age of 91. Uh, a long life, but a lot of movies in there. Uh, a whole career of uh, stellar work, uh, probably more prolific. As far as like prolific and effective goes, I think he has a better track record than anyone. Yeah, I mean, it's everyone always talks about Morricone as like the greatest composer, and largely because his work is so like immediately recognizable and often uh, bombastic or very you know loud and prominent in within the films. It's not uh, always it's it's very rarely like subtle work, at least for what we recognize him for. But, uh, you know, it's not unearned in any regard, you know, uh, 
you know, I think Morricone is truly one of the best, if not the best, like any uh, competition I could think of is someone like really <laughs> big, you know, equally big and recognizable yeah. like uh, Bernard Herman maybe, but also Herman never worked as much as Morricone did and on such a grand sphere. Uh, you know, we, we generally recognize Morricone for those spaghetti westerns like we just talked about last week, but mm. he he did so very much across so many genres. Uh, off the top of your head, Calvin, do you, do you have an approximate idea of how many f- works he composed for? A few hundred, maybe maybe a couple hundred more. <laughs> yeah, see. just on IMDb, it lists his composer credits as over 500. Yeah. Which is I, insane. That's I believe like 300 feature films, or I don't know what, what the actual cut is. Yeah, like. a lot of mixed in there are shorts and like TV episodes or series yeah. and such. But yeah, like 300 films would, would also not surprise me <laughs> at all because it's just it's an insane amount of work. And yeah. again, not just... Uh, you know, around his, his small area. He's an international composer. You know, he does he did stuff all over not only Italy but in America and French works as well. Not recognized for a long time until he got that honorary Oscar and then uh he also has like a, a long dead period there where he where he didn't do a lot of work, so like a flurry of work early on in his career. and uh, and going over about what, like five decades maybe, four or five decades mm-hmm. and he's that- creating work. And that Western work is, is fairly early on, that stuff in the right. 60s. That's, like, right at the front, uh, you know, and then from there, it's just a very eclectic career. Do you have any uh, scores from him outside of the, the Western stratosphere that really stick out? Oh, man, I was I was still thinking Westerns, but I, I would like to direct people to, like, the big gun down. And, uh, and of course, he got recognized for Tarantino's um, The Hateful Eight, which is, I think, the one good thing about that movie. <laughs> oh, well, well... I mean, I think there might be a little bit more, but you have to go back to our Tarantino <laughs> cast to hear it. But well, uh, you know what I, you know what I think says everything though is that Carpenter brought him in for the thing, and he did a better job of Carpenter than Carpenter ever did. Right, that's incredible. that's the kind of insane thing. We always, everyone always lauds Carpenter for his great electronic scores, and Morricone did the same. Like he he took that yeah. Carpenter idea and just made it really flourish. Uh, the thing has a fantastically you know pulsating score throughout, which is not Morricone-like in the way that we think about it, but it's still magnificent and uh, memorable. Yeah, so he's able to match and work in so many styles. I mean, I think my favorite one we're going to get to today, but uh, we've been talking every time we get to a Western. uh, Everyone that has had Morricone in it, we're like, is this the best one? Yes, but also (laughs) there are more. It's hard for me to pick. Uh, You know, we talk about it a lot, especially with the last couple Westerns, since we're hitting Mm. those uh, Leone films. But really, it's like, and I'm sure you can go back and hear when we talked about them as well, that I, I just love, love, love the scores for Once Upon a Time in the West and also the, the serenity of The Great Silence, which was the, yeah. the first um, uh, spaghetti western we talked about. I I think about things like uh, The Mission and The Big Gun Down have incredible scores. The, the one thing that uh, made it really resonant with me is that we fell asleep watching Untouchables and... You know, uh, like 20, 30 minutes before we fell asleep, I was already uh, commenting how <laughs> like uh, this intro, it's so elevated by Maricone. And when it comes in, he does like a fusion thing on top of like a gangster Chicago and jazz score that like elevates it into like there there are like Western twangs in there and, and weird different cultural feelings that are represented. Um, and then I woke up to the news like uh, so I, I fell asleep and woke up to Maricone and I, that that just impacted me in a big way. 
uh, his work with uh, De Palma, I mean, it didn't, uh, it went beyond just the Untouchables as well. He followed up with the next film and doing uh, Casualties of War as well. I don't know if you've seen that one. I'm very light on De Palma, actually. Uh, I was actually just watching Untouchables for the first time. So That was really the first time? I kind of it was, yeah. Uh, I'm surprised. <laughs> <laughs> I am too, because uh, you would think something like De Palma, Maricone, De Niro, <laughs> Costner, it would, it would be like, maybe I should watch this sometime. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it seems very appealing. Like, that, that just seems like one of those films that you watch and check <laughs> off the list uh, relatively early, if, if yeah. that's the kind of stuff you're interested in. Uh, especially, I mean, because, you know, we love De Palma around here. Have we got to De Palma yet? Did we talk about De Palma film at some point? Did we do Phantom of Paradise yet? Mm, I think we skipped over Phantom of the Paradise. Okay. Maybe, maybe we'll do that come October again. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, there's... Shit, maybe we haven't talked about De Palma yet. <laughs> it's very possible, because we haven't got to blow out yet. Um, we'll we'll there, get to some there, De Palma. There's so many films. This is our 82nd podcast, by the way, Calvin, and it just so shows you, because there's so many we haven't covered yet. Like, we, we haven't covered a huge figure like De Palma. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm surprised, though. I, I feel like we should have. We We will. Yeah, there's definitely some spots we'll get to, but you know, it's our our choosing is erratic and uh, irrational. Sometimes we just kind of go with whatever we feel like, and this week uh, definitely called for something a little more uh, fitting of uh, such a legendary career. I, I really couldn't think of a better film to kind of tackle um, to really honor Morricone's memory. I think makes Cinema Paradiso the perfect choice for Maricone is that for me, it's like an elegy of Italian film. It shows so many of the post-war Italians uh, within the Cinema Paradiso itself. And it has such a, a feeling of history and installed legacy while also being one of the last truly successful Italian films and becoming one of the most successful ones. Has there really not been many successful Italian films post-1988? There haven't been so many. After that, the industry sort of crashed, and this was like the last large one. Um, I think what's most interesting about this, uh, we watched different versions as well. Um, uh, Weinstein had gone to uh, Italy, and uh, the it's, it's, a, it's always fucking Weinstein, isn't it? This is the big Weinstein movie, so we're going to have to talk about that a lot. What, what do you mean this is the big? Aren't they all, like, He's he's got his grubby fucking sexual predator hands and goddamn everything this is the one that kind of defined weinstein as like an international player like he he went into the foreign market because he saw that people weren't um navigating that because of course if you're a foreign body you're not going to be able to push for the oscars right so he realized right. that he could uh station his own office in italy and have one in america and they could coordinate a push campaign where they could have dinner parties and uh, make a foreign push and that was his first oscar and where he got you know his all his props to go do like the the go go indies of the nineties. Mm-hmm. 
Son of a bitch. All right. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And it's Weinstein's choice. Infamously, we call him Scissorhands Weinstein, right? Because he, he cuts down every movie that he touches. And that's a, we have Everything. an hour difference between what we I, I always love... I love hearing this story from uh, Bong Juno where he talks about, like, uh, it was with Snowpiercer, and he talked about, um, like, there's the scene with, like, a big fish thing yeah. or whatever or whatnot, and Weinstein wanted to cut it, and uh, Bong just, like, made up some bullshit story about his dad being a fisherman and how that was an important <laughs> scene for him. And so Weinstein was like, oh, yeah, family's a big deal. We understand that. We'll keep that in. It was just total bullshit. Right. Uh, I think there were certain people that could escape it, like Tarantino was almost untouchable, but um, there there were a lot of others that he really, you know, Scissorhands, Weinstein, for a good reason. He, he, he uh, him and, you know, Miramax released all those uh, Hong Kong action films, like other property on lots of John Woo stuff and Jackie Chan films and whatnot. And they messed up the distribution of those. Still to this day, you can't get... Like, it's hard to get decent releases. Like, only recently have we gotten some good releases that, with just... Like, most of them are just fucking dubbed. And it's awful. And, I, and the quality is terrible. Like, like especially the John Woo films. Like, really great John Woo films. You can't get good releases of them now because fucking Miramax's distribution is just god-awful. I like the idea of Bong appealing to family, because Miramax, of course, named after their their parents, Miriam and Max, I believe. So, uh, the, It's obviously that they, they want, like, a family value at the course. A good way to manipulate the, the manipulators. Yeah, well, you know, he, he seems like a very family-friendly guy, <laughs> doesn't he? Uh, a real jerk-off, but uh, really clever about distribution. So this came out in Italy and was an absolute bomb. Uh, that was the, that's what, really? yeah, that's what the director's cut was. Uh, the original vision of the film was far too long and audiences didn't soak it up at all in Italy uh, until the international cut, which is the version I watched. Um, How long is that one? Because I know the, the one that I watched was almost three hours. Mine was two hours, three minutes. Three minutes yeah. or 30? Uh, three. Three, wow, yeah. that's a lot he, that's cut. He literally cut 50 minutes, which we could really go into in depth if you want, but I, I only know, like, broad strokes, because I haven't seen that version in three just, years. Just give me, give, give me like, a like a general sense, like, uh, I'm, I'm kind of curious as to what's cut, because watching it, I, I was thinking about that watching, because I knew there was multiple cuts, and I'm like, I'm not sure what you cut without <laughs> just, like, decimating entire plot lines oh it makes it so much better i think it's such a brisk I'd love to watch know, like, do, do you cut out all of like the erroneous sex scenes you do Go, oh, okay cool i didn't need to see that couple <laughs> fucking standing up in the middle of the theater like I, yeah I, it was is fine like i didn't care that much i'm like oh this is unnecessary yeah, or, or like where he, he loses his virginity where, where Toto loses his virginity with the prostitute at the theater and you also you cut that yeah and you you also cut, <laughs> cut when he consummates with uh, elena and uh you cut a lot of things uh, you cut everything in between that some of it i like i i want to say the main thing i like is that it gets the rhythm of italian life a lot better in the original cut there's there's a slowness and like a proceduralness to to like uh to toto in the town and like feeling like uh you're kind of living the the pace of life that that isn't there in the international cut uh, yeah, I'm, I'm not sure exactly because the it's uh, again I, I definitely have to see um, because the the film is like dice like cut into like three very distinct acts mm. and and I think they all have uh, intent uh, like like 
intentional purpose to them. So, like I said, I don't know what you cut necessarily without just, like, chopping out whole significant things. But that makes sense to cut stuff like all of the, the sexual aspects of, of Toto's growing up. Because it is, like, tonally it's a little odd, at least from my American sensibilities, to have uh, sex in this very kind of, like, childlike wonderment kind of story. Yeah. Like, everything else is, is very, like, PG, I would say, otherwise. Yeah. And you could show this to to just about anyone until he starts boning prostitutes on the theater floor. <laughs> of course. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, that doesn't need to be in there. There's a lot of stuff that doesn't need to be in there. Um, it's, the ending is completely different. At least your interpretation of it would be radically different. What? Yeah. What? How? How? Well, in the way that Alfredo tells him, never return to, um, never return, right? Like your destiny yeah, is yeah. to go out and go away thing. and be successful. Uh, that's what he does in the in the uh, international version. He he doesn't right. come back. He doesn't consummate. He, so so he doesn't. Wait wait he, he he doesn't leave in the theatrical cut. No, um, he still leaves. He just doesn't come back and visit, and he doesn't. Um, oh, so there's not the whole funeral scene. There is, where, like, but he, uh, no, that that is when he comes back, and and it's like he remembers the faces of the people there. So what? What do you just cut the whole reconciliation, the meeting with the, the the woman, the the girl from his past? Yeah, I think you cut a lot of that, and it's interesting. There's so much that has to be cut. Um, it keeps everything about the cinema and basically cuts all the surrounding stuff. So like the the whole plot line with him meeting that that girl and falling in love with the. You know, and then like being totally like they they just miss each other entirely. The star-crossed lovers plotline. It's very short. I mean, there's a bit in there. Can I watch that cut instead? <laughs> I think it... that was that was like I'm, I'm gonna say this like because I was so down with the movie for that first act. I was like, this is a masterpiece. It's amazing. And then once it started bogging down in the the like the saccharine like love stories line, like it, it totally started to lose me. It doesn't and, do that at all. Yeah. I, I kind of want to watch that because, like, I felt like the film totally got away from its purpose because, like, the first act is, like, just about this this romance with cinema and the way it affects the community in this very beautiful way. I mean, it, and then, it has the part where he goes into the military, right? Like, he gets yeah, the letters yeah. and it, it's more like a montage. Yeah, I, I feel like that might improve. Cause, <laughs> yeah. Don't get me wrong. Like, this isn't a situation where I'm like, oh, I'm going to shit on one of Calvin's favorite movies no. again. Like, it just, it it definitely felt like it got distracted from its, its like, main point, its subject matter. And, and like, intentionally so. Like, that was clearly the, the arc of the character is that he he loses sight of the, the cinema and gets caught in teenage romance and, and dumb, like, puppy love stuff. But, it like, it treated that so sincerely and in ways and like it just felt like i was i was overwhelmed with like ooey gooey romance crap and i didn't care about i'm like move on do go back to what you're doing follow alfredo he knows you know you got this great relationship with him what are you doing this girl doesn't even care about you and i think i think ultimately like the ending shots have to be the same right like he gets the film real and yeah, well, and and it definitely it came around for the ending like that because then the ending like is like, hey, this is really what you love and care yeah. about. Look at this, and it and it's and it's a whammy of an ending still because it really brings back those those aspects with the the cut pieces of film. And again, because it is about like it has that extra layer of subtext to it because it is is the kissing and the romance and the love, and it and it blends it with this idea of cinema. And that's the theme that I felt like I could really channel and and grab onto. And what the the whole first act that 
beautiful fucking first act was all about, and then it just got sidetracked. So I'm I'm for me, elated yeah, to hear that. For me, it never leaves the feeling of the first act in the in the international cut. But I, I like the belaboring somewhat. Is is kind of my thing. I like the slow Italianness of it, and the and I like the nostalgia for relationships and uh, right. It it wasn't it's not better. It was it wasn't bad. I, yeah. I didn't think, and I never felt like this was bad. It was, it was just definitely not what I wanted after the first act, and uh, it it definitely felt very schmaltzy yeah. in uh, what what it was uh, getting at there. Of uh, course, I think especially when when, when he comes back and he's. Ah, the, the damn idiot! He's trying to like he's trying to rekindle this romance when he's like aged and everything now, and she's married to his old friend and stuff. And I'm yeah, like, we don't what need are you that. Doing? <laughs> it's, see, just not having that makes it pretty much a ten out of ten movie. I mean, uh, once you, I cut can that see out. that. I can, I can see that way more because that was like my my singular issue, and, and the film just kept doubling down on that as it went along. Yeah. Um, <laughs> So, I mean, Weinstein's also dramatically improves some movies. They made a lot of people mad, but uh, they got big for a reason, because they knew how to control the narratives. I, yeah, I don't know. I'll give I'll give them this one. Yeah. I'll, I'll see it first, and then I'll give it to him, maybe. But but generally, I'm very reluctant to give him any, like even an inch of credit yeah. on anything right now. <laughs> That's fair. Uh, for this one, I feel like he saved it and that he changed the way that we looked at foreign films somewhat, just establishing that uh, they need to have Oscar campaigns in America and that that's why they're more accessible to us now. Um, mm -hmm. So in some sense, he helped us, but it uh, doesn't mean he's not uh, a bastard. Well, ter terrible people can do good things, of you course. know. Uh, Hitler did improve the econ economy for Germany in the 1930s, mm -hmm. so there's there's that. Yeah. <laughs> Um, there's a lot that I really like about the film. Um, I like that it's not just about cinema itself. It's about the sense of place of being at the cinema and the feeling of nostalgia for a uh, smell of a building. Like before yeah. multiplex is like watching it like this. It made me so like, like yearning. Like I yearned so much to return to the, the cinema that I love, the the great cathedrals of art, yeah. is, is kind of how I felt about it, and it did, especially because the story weaves the early on it weaves the idea of of religion and the theater together. It's literally, uh, you know, a theater that's a a part of the the church. It seems like there, mm -hmm. I, I didn't get the exact connotation there, but the, the, I mean, the priest obviously has some kind of sanction over the material. That's why they're cutting out all of the romance scenes and such. Italian censor is very heavy. On that stuff yeah so it was it was wonderful to 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 see that kind of marriage of this idea because it is like a a, a church-going experience for so many of us we are a congregation that comes together at the cinema and and that was a recurring thing you saw throughout seeing the same people evolve and relationships grow over the course of the movie in the cinema that was that was a very magical thing to see like watching the couple get together over time just looking at like the whole growth of like the Italian center. I mean, you're in the, you're in the, um, cathedral, like, uh, like cinema. And then you go to, um, the kid's school and it still has all the crosses and Catholic school. Of course, uh, just the whole city square has a feeling of Catholicism grounded in it. And it has that sense of place and, uh, religious belonging. So, um, well, and, and the cinema itself did feel like a grandiose palace, yeah. uh, you know, for which people return to. Like I even, I even thought about it, like the, and it evokes so many like familiar 
you know very theatrical feelings like the the projection uh booth like where the the projection comes out of they have like it's a very evocative of the the mgm lion right you know leo the lion there yeah and yeah also like baroque like statues and uh just like a feeling of classical you know movie magic like coming out of a lion says a lot about it it's not just a hole in the wall um, it could be yeah, anything no, it, it feels like a very majestic place uh in in its several iterations even when he returns to it later and it's this decrepit old place falling apart full right. of cobwebs and stuff it's very very beautiful still even the one that was modern and it felt like it had that feeling of newness that replaced old culture then you return to it later and it has that same feeling of old culture um, mm. it, it reminds you like where we place nostalgia it's just through our own experiences. I mean, it's nothing inherent about a building, but uh, our experience is there. And I think that's what's so important is uh, watching how everyone experiences it. You know, whether the kids are like jerking off for the cinema. I mean, yeah. they go through like every phase of life from laughter to, you know, rebellion. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. And it really does feel like it does feel like a, a place where everyone comes together. And, and again, like I said, they weave this idea of community in a recurring place. And especially... I I can't be the only one thinking that the best scene in the movie is is where everyone's clamoring to see that film early on, and then uh, Alfredo turns turns the projection outside to show everyone <laughs> that that moment where you see the the projection just kind of pan across and slowly come out and be projected on the wall. That was a truly transcendent and, and magical moment, maybe one of the best in any movie I've seen. I think I think for me it's it's that one and then the the outdoor cinema in Italy where they're on the boats and the rain's coming down mm-hmm. and and they reunite. Um, then there's the uh, and there's just the ending, which is so special because it yeah. takes all those cut bits and it feels like oh he was cutting it just for censors, but but really he made like a what the movie's about for me is like memory of cinema and memory of experience. So. It was like a whole collection of the most beautiful things in movies. Uh, a whole collection that shows love and memory of his experiences. It's it's the romance of cinema, I thought, yeah. you know, in a very literal sense in some ways. And it's this uh, montage of, uh, you know, movie kisses, big movie kisses. And you got a, a whole collection of famous ones in there. You can pick out some. And, and that's another fun thing, I think, with the movie for, like, movie buffs like us is kind of pick it out and be like, I recognize that and stuff right. in other ones. Because it is, it's not just uh, major Italian films of the 1950s and such, which is predominantly when the the Paradiso is running and such. There's westerns, uh, and... yeah, like early on, you get a, a dubbing of John Wayne in Stagecoach, <laughs> which was which is funny to hear. I'm like, that's weird, especially because I I, rec- I saw like the translation they put for his line. He, they said he's going up to Oregon, yeah, and I'm like, that's not where he's going at all in the movie. <laughs> it's very funny to think of it that way, like the Italian experience of those, so different and uh, also the the young boys doing the, you know, the Indian pad over their, you know, the stereotypical thing over their faces and uh, what that looks like, people from another culture, like like we saw that in Parasite too, just uh, why why are we attaching to the Indians in, in this culture, because it's universal. Well, yeah, and and the uh, uh, the problematic nature of that doesn't right. resonate as much. Like they don't care as much about that overseas. It doesn't. It's not in their cultural mind. I think as prominently as ours. And, yeah. and you can take it as the mythological. Like from from an outsider's perspective, it's easier to view the Western landscape and, and mythos as the kind of you know 
uh, dynastic uh, place that we purport it to be in, in all of our stories and I mean, such. Like we, we looked at what the Italians did last week, and their understanding of the West <laughs> is very interesting, you know. Mm-hmm. But no, it's th- that first act, uh, if the rest of the film was like that in the shorter version, I, I need to revisit because yeah. it, it was it was very magical and uh, fantastic. And this is, is it did have this nostalgic feeling. It had this great sense of like the, the lost experience of cinema in some ways that, that we don't have as much anymore. It had the beautiful friendship between Alfredo and, and the young boy, young Toto there. Yeah. And him just overcome with jubilance at, at the the idea of the the movies and him you know under coming to understand the projection and everything and, and that whole setup through the first act was just a beautiful magic uh all the way up until the it, it takes that 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 turn there's always like a geppetto pinocchio feeling to me like the way he like picks him up like he's a like a wooden boy and puts him on the stool and you know um just like the the you know look learning from the master of, of the craft and it's so gorgeous their relationship and uh and it comes through in the movies like they even tell each other off a few times and their conflicts are fun too mm-hmm. i i have to say when that uh you know I, I talk about my favorite moment in the movie being that scene where where they project on the wall and you get this this latest sense it really is like the high point in optimism of it and mm-hmm. it's it's then undercut in a in a genius move of tragedy which i knew was coming because they set it up they set it up so well to hint you at the idea of of the The film catching on fire at a couple different points and it's the perfect moment to do that because it's the highest point of of optimism it's the exact moment where you want to undercut it and it was it was sad to see the way it went but i i took a look a bit more into it because i was kind of curious and i realized that the execution of the scene was even more genius than i realized um do you know what film that is that they're playing when uh that scene happens i can't remember does it have some context uh, of churches burning or something uh sort of it was uh you know i I came across it uh almost by accident because the you know it's a it's a comedy film you can see and everyone's really enjoying that that's that's the setup to the scene it's this brand new uh comedy film that everyone's you know clamoring about they love it uh, and they want to see it more, and so that's why he starts projecting outside because the mm-hmm. the theater owners won't let them play it anymore. And I thought I recognized the the main guy. He looked a lot like uh, Stan Laurel to me, so I went to go look up what it was. And what it turns was out it? it's not. Uh, it's it's an Italian comedy film, uh, and the star is actually a a guy named Toto. Okay. Which well, yeah, that's that's just his name. I was like, oh well, that's already fitting. But then when I saw the name of the film, I was even more uh affected by it because i realized how how specifically it had to be that film right uh i'm I'm not going to try and pronounce the italian name of it but what it translates to for us is the fireman of vigue wow okay so uh possibly taking the character name and a lot of inspiration for that sequence that is like the subversion of that moment well, especially because like the the title of it, it kind of just hit me like a sledgehammer because yeah. it is that it's precipitating the 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 theater catching on fire and, and burning down, and then Alfredo losing his eyesight because of it was just and that's that's such an awful thing, almost worse than dying. I think it's... like is a turn into story. I think about because again, it's that it's that tragic irony of someone who loves such a visual experience of the cinema losing that the ability to connect with it and that 
true way. It's it's just heartbreaking if, in the, the worst way. <laughs> if your cut does anything, I think it has further irony about that and other other elements of it. I think it has the irony intact that's very Italian. Um, I I agree. Just like the blindness for a movie projector, you know that's that's the end of the road. But I I love the beauty of him still being able to read how it's showing on the screen mm-hmm. just through. And he's like Toto's like, how do you do that? And he's like, you, yeah, you know, you can't know. Yeah, it's, it'd be too hard to explain whatever he says. He yeah. still has this, and he, like, and it's the same thing. Uh, I don't know if it's in your cut either, but when Toto is showing him the footage of that he that he shot of the girl, right, and and he's able to pick up from how how Toto is talking about it that it that <laughs> he it says, is of a girl. He says that's a woman, and, and yeah, how do you know? <laughs> because the way he said that, it's just blank. You could you he could read it, and that's how in tune they became. I think. He, he's a very insightful kind of sage-like character, and and so full of uh, life and, and wonder, uh, and and that's a lot of. And again, it you know it helps their relationship there, and, and really fleshes it out. And um, yeah, man, I'm almost uh, frustrated now that I watched that cut because you even told me ahead of time to watch the shorter version, but this is the only one that was available that I found. I think it's. Uh, I mean, I think I. I don't know. I think you'll be fine watching both of them. I think that'll no, give I, you I, an appreciation. I still enjoyed it. I still enjoyed it greatly. I just got increasingly frustrated as it went along, and he just kept being more obsessed with this relationship. Because even when like it's it's totally done, and she's like, "Oh, I left a note for you, but it's all done. Don't worry. You know, this is years ago and stuff." And he races back to the abandoned theater, and he's searching around for the note, like the the message he wrote on like a thirty year old like receipt that stuck on the wall, and he's like mm-hmm. frantically, "I'm like, dude, fucking stop." Yeah, you don't need it. And uh, I I couldn't believe how brisk the. Uh, the cut was because i think i had watched your version last and man it it moves fast that's that's good to hear especially because i I, you know three hour films four hour films whatever it is there's a place form they're great it's nice to have that epic feeling but nothing's better than like just a brisk you know two hour 90 minute whatever it is experience just sit you know and take it in and, and and be done if if you don't have to make it that long then don't, you know? Editing is its own art. Certainly. And especially when you have, like, erroneous plot lines that <laughs> yeah, you don't need. And again, course. like, it, because this lost love uh, storyline doesn't jive as much with the romance of the cinema, like, if they found a way to intertwine it better, like, if the films that were being projected and shown somehow, like, reflected on and commented on the relationships that he was having at the same time, like, I just feel like that didn't work as well if you found a way to to weave them together better then you could make it work and i'm fine with that but it just it's, it just seemed like it abandoned that yeah to focus on this this love plot line i think you'll be very happy then um that it i don't know if it always comments on it but it's fast enough that you don't need it to anymore mm-hmm. but i think the one thing that is easily uh you know praiseable and like magnificent in both versions i'm sure is the morricone score yeah you know, the reason we're here <laughs> Uh, God, just that that main score, especially over the ending, it made me sob like a baby. Uh, maybe it's with Maricone dying, but uh, uh, very heavy and impactful. Um, always fits the right moment. It's such a it's such a romantic score. Uh, you know, there's a lot of heavy piano usage, which is not something I usually associate with Morricone, but. It's really beautiful and and haunting throughout, and it's uh you know it's often using the same theme over and over throughout, but it's it's always working. It's working overtime to really 
you know, punctuate and, you know, push those emotions that the film is already, you know, throwing out really hard there throughout. Mm-hmm. I'd, I'd say it's near impossible not to be bowled over by the, the combination of the sheer, you know, glee that the film exudes with the score in tandem. That's the first thing I watched when I found out he died. I put on that, uh, his orchestral version of the, of the main theme. It's so gorgeous and it has such a nice buildup that it's wonderful how it goes back and forth between the film over those key moments that it really attaches to your memory of, of the best sequences. And, and you really mm-hmm. think about Maricone when you think about Cinema Paradisia. I, I think you can't, uh, you can't help but think about it, certainly, because it is so intertwined with everything going on. I think it becomes it, like a character of the movie itself. Definitely, and, it, and it's and like every Morricone score, it only seeks to elevate uh, the material present there. You know, it's almost as if you make a film just to have a score by Morricone. <laughs> he's not he's not scoring your film so much as you're making a film for his music. Literally, what happens with Leone later? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. I mean, really brilliant that uh, that that happened because without that score, I don't know if some of that could work for me. I think I think it works because the score largely. I think. I think a lot of it would still work in the beginning, but it's yeah. it's hard to say. I can't exactly divorce them in my mind. No, I mean it's impossible. I, like I say, that's your memory of the material once you've seen it and heard it that way. And in particular, like you said, for the ending, this is uh, certainly I would say an ending for the ages. Um, you know, and and it, it's a very simple idea, but the way it's executed just works so well. Um, you know, it's actually my favorite film ending, <laughs> like <laughs> like of all the movies. Uh, I think this has to be my favorite because it is such a collection of of love and movies and a celebration and kind of an elegy of something. Um, I, I I romanticize as much as I can because that's what it is. It's romantic. What it does, I feel like, is uh, and and it's funny because there's a clip of it somewhere mixed in there. Uh, it reminds me of another film. Uh, it's not an ending of the film, but a similar sensation you get. Uh, and I don't know if you've seen this film yet, but maybe we should talk about it sometime. Uh, are, are you familiar with uh, Sullivan's Travels? Uh, no, I've, I've had it on my list for a while, so uh, happy to look at that very soon. Yeah, so so Sullivan's Travels is a Preston Sturgis film which deals directly with directors and uh, filmmaking and the power of comedy in film specifically. And there's a scene that reminds me of the ending here where uh it's just you know it it showcases how affecting and and real uh that the screen can can give us an an emotional resonance uh and not in the same context exactly but i get that same sensation where you're like reminded that like this is what the power of movies can be yeah and that's that's the same feeling you get and seeing the emotional effects that those those reflections of light uh, can have upon someone sitting in the audience, uh, and and it's definitely it's a it's a beautifully romantic ending. Uh, again, not only for the the context in which it provides and this uh, completion of an arc for uh, Toto's character and his relationship with Alfredo, but just the the. Uh, the elated feeling of watching these scenes on screen that we're able to connect with as an audience. We're sitting right there next to Toto, taking in these beautiful romantic moments and, and reliving them. There, there are so many great movies about movies. This one just happens to be my favorite one. And it's a, it's it a good be, pick, I would say. Maybe it, the first it, I encountered, too. 
you know, uh, unlike the opposite end where I'm, you know, a champion of something like Billy Wilder and Sunset Boulevard, or you know, w- which is like the cynical take, yeah. of course. This one is, is nothing but optimistic and jubilant and nostalgic. This is really uh, how I feel about movies. I mean, I'm not that and, cynical about them. Right. Well, when I'm not necessarily cynical either, but to me, like, more than movies, like, like, Sunset Boulevard is obviously more like a Hollywood right. kind of story think, about the industry. I think this a lot is more about, reason to be cynical about Hollywood than like this yeah. Italian square where there's this no is, cynicism. This is, about, this is about movies, the art form, and the experience of the cinema itself. And yeah. I think that's what particularly resonated with me. Maybe because we, we're not allowed near the cinemas right now, maybe because that's an absent factor from our life. But specifically, the, the communal aspect of it really struck a chord with me. Yeah. And it reminded me why I'm so desperate to get back out in the theater again. <laughs> I'll have another interesting movie to talk about, um, Bloody Nose and uh, Empty Pockets next week. Uh, there, There's a huge need for movies about collective spaces and what we're losing by not having them. And this is one of my favorite of those. Uh, uh, God, uh, that outdoor sequence really makes me want to go to a drive-in or anywhere. I, I need to see a movie with other people. I'm, yeah, <laughs> my hobby's Because that's dying. the thing... I think that's an easy thing to forget in this time is that film is is not a, a singular medium. We yeah. can sit here on our couch and consume the art. We can analyze and talk about how it affects us, but it's an entirely different experience and a, a one that is necessary, I think, to take in with a group of people I'd, I'd in, even a, say, in a dark room. I'd even say movies are designed around that context. I don't. They think entirely are. There's there's a slew of examples. Um, you know, one I always hear and I hear talk about, and uh, you know, it, it might be bad to talk about here exactly, but uh, a Marx Brothers film plays entirely plays entirely differently with a room full of people than right. it does on your own because they're designed, especially like a lot of comedy films and stuff like that. They're designed with the with the intention that an audience needs to laugh and there needs to be a reprieve between <laughs> moments. I mean, I was listening to that uh, that that great uh, Turner Classic Movie podcast the last week mm-hmm. with Hitchcock, and very interesting to me how he talks about how he's directing the audience and not actors. So we think about an entire history of film, and we have this short bit where there's a home movie market, right? Like our most of our cinema history can't be designed for home because it didn't exist. Well, it's the same thing as well, where it's like the format was designed and the art form was led by this idea that you're sitting in a dark room with no distractions for 90 minutes and and you're just taking in the screen. Like, it can't be, you can't account for people who can pause and walk away and and take in different strides. It's it's an entirely different thing. And so, in a way, uh, Cinema Paradiso also kind of operates as a, post-mortem because we're coming up you know in that late 80s time frame where we're losing that cinematic experience me me and you i don't know if we ever had the experience of the cinema that cinema paradiso is specifically referring to there's a there's a difference in time period between the 1950s film experience and the you know post-millennium yeah like well i've never been well i couldn't be in like a post-war italy theater right like a, yeah uh, we can never have that exact context but uh we could do the best we can at independent theaters uh some some age buildings might get us close uh, i know it's... i've had similar feelings uh without replicating the space right the best you can do like at least what this reminds us of is an experience outside a multiplex which god please <laughs> most people 
I bet ne- right now most modern moviegoers have never experienced, which is just a, a complete tragedy because there's so much more out there and there's so it's a whole different communal experience, especially when you can go to a space where you can trust there's an audience who respects the sanctity of the, the theater, you right. know. Which is not the case in a multiplex. Like for me, obviously, like our press stuff will get scheduled there, but I'm I'm sincerely thinking about making my non-press screenings all at uh, repertory theaters, and uh, those are the places that I get my closest experience of what this is showing. And and you know they're run by people who truly understand right. what that the proper experience is, and most of the time they they curate the stuff properly. That's where you go to see cinema. That's where you, know, you might see Cinema Paradisia, actually. Yeah, yeah. That This would be a great movie to see in a theater whenever that opens up again. I have done it once long ago at a repertory, and I'd really like to have that experience once a year for the rest of my life. I, it's magic in a theater. I, I can't even explain how beautiful this is. I look forward to seeing it. I definitely I feel... I feel slightly robbed not having the same experience that, that you have... Uh, had with the film particularly in the in the cut that was chosen that's always an interesting thing as well you always got to talk about which versions are available yeah. you know what what to watch and uh those those different versions i think need to be made available because there's no way to just pick because you can't necessarily say oh the director made the three-hour version that's the best one it's not always it's not the true. case yeah i mean it's that, not always the case yeah. we look at this one that's the version that failed in its home country so you know there, there is a merit to editing, and it is important. Uh, well, and sometimes, sometimes you get weird things, like you get fan cuts that yeah. end up being, you know, celebrated as, as, yeah, the definitive is is odd, and it's an in- interesting evolution for cinema because you know, prior to this time period, like the time period the film is depicting, even you know, cuts of films like you, you just had the version that the studio cut regardless of the director's vision or whatever and you know then that's all you have there's so many films where the the director had their ability taken away and it's you know this is what we have to live with uh i'll forever mourn the lost footage of magnificent ambersons unless it does eventually show up again this is why someone created a kickstarter to take the rat out of uh, the departed yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's that's the kind of thing we're really actually talking about we need no rat departed cut <laughs> but we're always grateful for what we do have and i like that we have two cuts and this allowed us to talk about both of them so yeah thanks I, for doing I'll, that. I'll always i'll always advocate for the preservation of all versions of a film mm-hmm. and allow the audience to pick which is best because you know as you even expressed there are things about the longer cut that are good it's, yeah, it's not i want both of not, them yeah, it's not perfect either way, but everyone deserves to have have their preference and made available. And you know what? It'll be so impactful when you go back. Just like I had watched the longer cut last, and then went to this one, it'll it'll blow you away. Just how brisk it is, and and you'll be able to feel the difference because you won't know what's missing otherwise. So I'll be I'll be excited to get this. I won't I won't lie. I was a little nervous coming <laughs> into this podcast because I'm like, oh man. I got negative things to say again, and I just did that last week. And there's a number of other films that Calvin really loves that I've said, yeah, but, <laughs> but, but I think, it's good. I think it's good to whole, hear that you're giving me the pass because I watched the inferior cut here. So. Of course, um, <laughs> still nearly perfect for me. I mean, it's hard for me to get away from knowing what was original, what the what the better cut was, though. So. All right, and that's and it's always interesting how what you watch first or how you go in is going to color your perspective of the film. Mm-hmm. 
Um, I think I think we're good here. I, I'm so glad that we got to come back and praise Maricone. Um, any yes. any final notes? Uh, I I don't think so. Just uh, go out and listen to the soundtrack at least if you're not going to hear or watch the film because it's beautiful in its own right, like all of his works. Yeah. So uh, rest in peace, Maricone, and uh, fuck the Washington Post.